Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com grapefruits, uh, lemons, limes, and this place is so ideally suited for it. You know, it's just amazing. You know, I mean, it's, they just grow. You know, you talk to somebody in New York, it's like, my God, really? Yeah, but they do. They do. It is my finishing touch. It might be the beginning to a lot of my food, but it is the definitive end to every single thing that I do. Welcome to From Scratch, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Michael Rollman. I'm a writer. I've spent the last 20 years in professional kitchens writing about and with the world's best chefs. The great thing about the cooking life is that you never stop learning. In this show, I want to go to the edges of what I know and then go beyond, together with you, with all chefs, home cooks, and everyone who cares about food and cooking. In each episode, we'll talk with one chef and one non-chef about the same theme. On today's episode, our theme is citrus. What I love about citrus is the flavor. Bright, alive, dynamic. It can be sweet. It's usually sour. One of your greatest friends in the kitchen is a lemon. And lime, the best citrus there is. Unless you're in Cuba and get your hands on some sour oranges for that sauce for smoky pork. I love citrus, which is why we're talking about it today. In my effort to discover more about citrus, we'll be sitting down with a historian who's made a career as Miami's resident storyteller. He'll help us discover how citrus became synonymous with Florida and how the growth of Florida's population might be a challenge for certain citrus cultivation. But first, the great chef, Michelle Bernstein. Michelle Bernstein, chef, mom, wife, and uh, cleaner. (laughs) Michelle's hometown of Miami has a booming hospitality industry. 
And many of the more luxurious hotels there feature restaurants created in partnership with the world's most famous chefs. But none of these high-profile chefs have roots in Miami, as Michelle does. Michelle was born and raised in Miami. She grew her career there. And now she has a legendary status among Miamians. If you had to name one great chef in Miami, Michelle's who you would name first. Our producer, Jonathan, made his way to Miami to speak with her. And before talking citrus, we first wanted to learn from Michelle about her unique position as a local culinary expert and how her career as a chef began, a career which happily wasn't derailed by an unpleasant experience with a classic French dish and one of my favorites. My first memory of cooking something I wanted to cook was when I turned seven and I asked my mom for my birthday as a gift. I wanted to learn how to make escargot because I ate them in a fancy French restaurant and I couldn't forget them. And of course, at the time, I thought that it was all about the snail. I didn't realize it was all about the garlic parsley butter. We made them together. She taught me how to do it. I took over and I made them three more times. I ingested probably about two and a half dozen um, escargot and I've never eaten them since. Young Michelle did not dream of becoming a chef. She was interested in science, especially chemistry. I decided to get into professional kitchens to boost my knowledge of food because I dreamt of being a nutritionist and a biochemist. I studied um, sciences, chemistries, uh, nutrition in school. I was just trying to figure out what branch of all of that I wanted to be in. Nutrition took her attention, and she began studying to become a dietitian. But it would require that she spend many months in a hospital, an assignment she didn't take to. I told my mom I didn't know what to do, and I didn't think it was for me. And, oh my God, if I see someone giving blood or taking blood or giving injections, I think I'm going to pass out. So she said, okay, let's, let's sit for a minute and let's think about this. What part of nutrition, what part of sciences do you really love? And I said, well, the chemistry of food. She said, I have this crazy idea. Why don't you just go to a culinary school? It will boost your knowledge. And maybe when you finally become a nutritionist slash dietitian, you actually know what you're talking about. And you can talk to people about recipes, about food more properly. She said, maybe one day you'll even write a book or be on television. And so um, I took her advice. Her mom's advice was sound. Chef Bernstein has won a Best Chef Award from the Beard Foundation, has been all over TV, and I love her book, Cuisine a Latina. But to begin her career in kitchens, she had to travel a tough road. So I started cooking, and of course, you know, back then it was all boys all the time, and it was a very macho place to be. I was always put in my place. Oh, yeah, you think you know about food just because your mother's a great cook? No, that's not quite how it works here. You know, in kitchens... We push down and then we build up, right? So I never got to the build up part till a few years later, but I was pushed down a lot. And every question I would get from everybody I worked with was, hey, Bernstein, you know this, you, you're never going to be a chef, right? This is not going to, this is not going to work out for you the way you expect it. And I would always look at them and say, but I'm not here to be a chef. This is not my shtick. You know, I'm, I'm here just to learn. Initially, she didn't find it necessary to match the competitiveness of the other cooks. I wasn't fighting, you know, I wasn't competitive like they were. I wasn't competing to be the best on the line or the best in the kitchen. But that grew, and the fire grew within me, and I wanted to start proving myself, and I wanted to start showing the guys around me. I wanted acceptance from the other cooks around me, and of course from the chefs. And so I searched for that acceptance, and I worked 
my tushy off, you know, and I come into work three hours earlier than everyone else. I'd leave two hours later than everyone else. And I was starting to build not only my talent, but also my confidence. And so, um, finally, after three years cooking in the same kitchen, I was finally asked, what is it you really want? Cause this definitely is not it. You know, girls like you don't become chefs. And I finally had the answer. Oh yes, it is. Thanks to all of you. I found what I want to do. Michelle is being generous here. The kitchens in the early 90s were still testosterone stadiums. They had free license to do things to fellow women cooks that no longer flies, or shouldn't. It's still out there, but it's getting better. But if you were a woman cook in the 90s, you had to be tough. You know, they treated me really like hell. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to go into, you know, what, I, what was done to me physically and mentally, but it built the strength and the confidence that I have today. And it was a turning point, and I finally decided this is what I want to do. And I found the love, of course. I always had love for food and cooking, but even more so. And I, and I wanted to do it even better, and I wanted to learn everything and be great. One reason we wanted to hear from Michelle is because of her expertise in using the ingredients which surround her. She truly was meant to be a chef because this far into her career, she is still giddy thinking about the bounty of Miami. Honestly, it all excites me. In my home, I grow calamansi. I'd never heard of that fruit. It resembles a small lime on the outside, but the inside is bright orange like a mandarin. It's native to the Philippines. It's used in Malaysian cuisine, and they do well in Miami's subtropical climate. I grew up with a calamansi tree at my house in Miami Shores from like birth and squeezing a little bit of that or making even a calamansi aid or lemonade out of that is so exciting to me. We grow plantains and bananas and you know, when a banana is green, not a plantain, but when a banana is green and you make a tostone out of that, it's light and airy and has like the tiniest touch of sweetness. And then you put a little melted cheese or even a piece of fish on top of that. And that to me, just drives me, you know, and and going out and picking in January and February our strawberries. There's nothing like a hot Florida strawberry. And if you're more into heat than sweet, Michelle has a local delicacy for you. We grow brown scotch bonnet peppers, which to me, you don't see brown ones in the market. You've never seen a brown one at a supermarket. It is a fire, like not a ghost chili, but it's a different, it has this acid to it. It's It's so complex and so delicious, even if you don't like spicy food and can't bear it, to use the skin of that in a recipe to totally change the chemistry of it and the flavor and what it does in your mouth, there's nothing like that in the world. And while these fantastic ingredients have been steadily available since her childhood, Miami cuisine has been in flux since Michelle got her start in kitchens. Back when I started, which was in the 90s, all the chefs and all the, my teachers were doing Caribbean food. Caribbean food was what we considered Florida food to be. Yes, of course, it had its Latin touches, but we were truly more Caribbean than anything. You would find, obviously, the tropicals in almost every dish, which is funny because I feel like the younger chefs today almost avoid them on purpose so that they're not known um, as these tropical fruit chefs you know, because almost it's almost, you know, a negative. It was a bit more spicy. We would add a lot of Asian touches, 
we, uh, they, because I stem from them. It, it wasn't really what I would do. Um, they would add their Asian touches. They would add wherever, whatever background they were more into the food and then give it the, what they called the Floribian touches, which is really funny. But you didn't really talk as much about Latin. You know, I saw Mariel Boatlifts come here. I saw the change. I saw um, us becoming more, I guess you could say, Latin-fied. Um, we didn't have little Venezuela, little Buenos Aires back then, um, like we do now. We have an enormous influx of Nicaragua and Colombia. I mean, in our Cuban restaurants today, if you find one Cuban in the kitchen, I would give you a hundred bucks because it does, it just doesn't, doesn't happen anymore. Um, you know, the Cubans that began here have now gone domestic on us, you know, and sadly their recipes are escaping. They're little by little, they're becoming more, I guess you could say central Americanized. Um, we're losing that Cuban flavor, which is really a shame because the Cuban flavor, there's, there's nothing like it. And so it's almost like we're becoming one big mix of Latin flavors and it's almost hard to define what each one is anymore. Maybe citrus is, in part, responsible for that blending of traditional flavor profiles. Every cuisine in Miami uses it, and uses it plenty. Michelle sees citrus as a unifying ingredient across dozens of cultures that are meeting and coming together in her city. I find citrus to be um, the definitive ingredient across these cultures. Where would we be without citrus in our ceviches? Where would we be without a sour orange or the combination of an orange and a lime to make a sour orange on our lechon? Where would we be without that slice of lime when they served you a grilled piece of chicken with caramelized onions on top of it? Where would I be without tajin, the Mexican chili with citrus acid in a bottle that they put on the vegetables, the raw vegetables in Mexico, that I use to crust my chicken for my arroz con pollo? You know, where would we be with out all of the citrus, our food would be dull. I hate to say this, but I don't think it would have the passion. It wouldn't sing on your tongue and we would be nowhere without it. I mean, it is the reason why everything is so impactful here. Um, it is my finishing touch. It might be the beginning to a lot of my food, but it is the definitive end to every single thing that I do. And she offered a simple tip for home cooks to test the potency of citrus with the most basic of recipes. Take some pasta, toss it in maybe a little bit. Think of your simplest recipe, right? Let's say what the kids love, a little butter and cheese, right? That's, that's pretty much the most basic. Add some lemon zest to that and see how your world will just explode. Squeeze a little bit of either lime or lemon, whatever you grab first, onto a sautéed piece of chicken or a fillet of fish, whether it's, you know, depending on where you live, a piece of salmon, use the zest and use the juice. It will brighten your whole week. Take a pork chop, cook it however you like it, um, whether you like to use dry spices on it, whatever it is. Take a little sliver of orange and squeeze it right over the top before you serve it. You won't believe the flavors that will pop in your mouth. The great thing about citrus is that not only can you taste a little bit of the citrus, but you taste everything else so much more. And it makes everything pow. 
So if you have a little garlic or a little spice or a little heat or whatever it might be, even an herb like a parsley or cilantro or an oregano or basil even in something, if you squeeze a little tiny, just a tiny zest or squeeze of citrus juice, you will taste everything even more. So you're basically adding flavor of all the ingredients you've already put in with that little that little shake of zest, whether it's on a microplane, which is super easy, or a zester, and um, just use a little juicer. It's insane. And then, of course, cocktails. Forget about it. You know, I even put my latest go-to drink is actually vermouth. And I take either red or white vermouth, and I squeeze a little lemon into it, and I shake it with ice. And it is one of the most fabulous cocktails ever. Think about a sangria without citrus. Where would we be? You know, think about rum without a little orange slice on it. So it's just like the icing on the cake. You wouldn't eat cake without icing, right? So why eat anything without a little bit of citrus on the top of it? This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com you deserve a moment to yourself every single day and a delicious bite of a keebler sandies can give you that comforting pause don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a keebler sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up this magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by ernie and the keebler elves so as life continues to fly by make the most of your me moment take a pause and enjoy a keebler sandies You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Michelle's home state of Florida is best known for one specific fruit, oranges. 
The orange has been a major crop and a central part of the Florida identity for many generations. And even today, just have a look at their license plate. And the way that oranges arrived in Florida follows all the landmarks of ancient trade and how food came from the old world to the new. Orange trees come to us from ancient China, and the first known mention was in the 3rd century AD. The popular 8th century Chinese poet Du Fu noticed the majesty of the orange tree when he wrote, Two big gardens planted with thousands of orange trees. Their thick leaves are putting the clouds to shame. The orange tree was brought to Europe where it gained popularity among royalty. And then, of course, it made its way to the New World. In all likelihood, citrus was introduced by the Spanish. That's Dr. Paul George. Right. I'm Paul George, resident historian, History Miami Museum in downtown Miami. Dr. George is professor of history at Miami-Dade College, has authored 15 books on various topics, and leads many historical tours around the Miami area. The Spanish settled St. Augustine, which had been a, a large sort of Indian, Native American center for the Temucuan Indians. They settled in there in 1565. And uh, within a matter of 20 or so years, there was an enslaved population already there the Spanish brought in. And that was also the center, and there's references to it in some of the old early documents on it, of citrus. They started cultivating oranges. As time went on, as the centuries went on, and Florida went from Spanish to British briefly for 20 years, back to Spanish, then to an American possession in 1821, the citrus industry continued to move south as more and more of the area of what we call the peninsula of Florida was developed south, but also because of climate. It's warmer as you move south, as you know. It's been said that the history of Florida can be marked by freezes. There are even several towns in Florida that have been named in a spirit of optimism against winter conditions, like Frostproof and Winter Haven. Those are actual towns. But for orange trees, the air temperature is a matter of life and death. If the air stays below 28 degrees, for more than a few hours, the juice inside of the orange freezes and the orange is destroyed. If a freeze is deep and prolonged, affected branches of the tree need to be amputated, which in some cases can lead to fatal infections of the host tree. By the late uh, 19th century, there were two horrendous freezes in Florida that just destroyed the citrus crops, namely oranges, but also grapefruits, limes, lemons, as far south as today's Palm Beach County. The smart wisdom was... We need to keep moving these crops south. This continuous need to avoid freezing temperatures even helped drive the growth of the city of Miami. Henry Flagler, this great railroad entrepreneur, this great oil man, uh, he understood that, that Miami had been spared that. And that's one reason why, one of the reasons why he moved his railroad down to the Miami River, also built what today would be a five-star hotel, uh, picked up a lot of farmland, began to sell off farmland because uh, he thought it was impermeable to, to freezes. So it was a year-round place to grow crops, among other things. So that had a big part to do with it, I think. Eventually, citrus growers developed successful methods to fight off the cold, especially after the Second World War. Large-scale farming that we are most familiar with today really is more of a post-World War II phenomenon down there because of technology, uh, because of financial assets. I'd like to pause here for a moment and offer a quick citation. We'll link to it in the show notes. There's a two-part article called Oranges by the writer John McPhee, published in The New Yorker in 1966 and published later as a book. It paints a vivid picture of the post-World War II era of citrus cultivation in Central and South Florida, 
McPhee spent weeks with grove owners, farmers, managers, and workers, learning the ins and outs of the industry. And one of the most interesting things he found was how orange growers dealt with the freezing temperatures. For starters, a frost warning service was created, which successfully predicted several major freezes during the 20th century. They issued warnings from which the farmers would spring into action with reserve workforces that doubled their ranks. Mostly, this emergency workforce would be lighting fires. Dr. George explained. When a freeze was coming or bearing down in the area, they had these heaters there, fuel-powered heaters to keep the trees from freezing. You know, if it was a fire, as it were, contained within sort of like a box with a screen on it. And uh, that was the, the way it went all the way into modern times. You needed to keep those places heated up. The farmers would burn anything they could to keep their crops warm, including oil or old car tires. They even employed large industrial fans, which mixed warmer air with the cold. After some practice, the orange industry learned to handle the freezes. Along the way, they also held off other smaller enemies like insects and the diseases they carry. To protect the trees from pests, gas mask wearing workers would strategically spray pesticides and other chemical agents. And for the rest of the 20th century, the growers successfully defended their crops. They got so good at cultivating oranges that residents in Florida would send oranges as gifts to show off how much better their weather was. You almost wanted to tantalize your folks back in Philadelphia or New York. You know, it was cold up there and you would ship them back a crate of orange just to kind of rub it in that, hey, you guys are in the wrong place. There were all sorts of tourist um, stops along roads uh, where you could pay a certain amount of money and they would do the shipping for you. But that goes back to probably the 20s. But if you look into the success of oranges in Florida now, in 2019, you'll find that Florida oranges are in crisis. Just last year, I read a wonderful article by Wyatt Williams called After Oranges, which was published in The Oxford American. Williams' piece followed in the footsteps of McPhee's story from 66, and the changes that he found were astonishing. For starters, Williams learned that the Florida citrus industry produced 250 million boxes of fruit in 2010, but only 70 million in 2016. That's a loss of about two-thirds of their output. And according to Ben Hill Griffin III of the Griffin citrus growing family, the cost of production has nearly tripled from $850 an acre to $2,400 per acre. One factor in this declining output has surely been housing development. When I was a kid growing up in mid-century, 60s, what have you, uh, I remember the start of every baseball season because I could smell the orange blossoms in this neighborhood. I haven't smelled one in 30 years probably, you know, because of development. They've been taken down. There's hardly any empty lots here. Uh, we're now the third largest state in terms of population, going on 21 million people. Uh, we can see in the greater Miami area what's happened. That so much of that farmland now are subdivisions. And these have been the last two booms. The one that started about 2002 and the one that started about 2012 have just eradicated a lot of farmland. Uh, but there's been other reasons too. Disease has been a reason. There's one killer that has citrus growers in a panic, more than housing development ever could. This deep decline in output is linked to one tiny enemy that the industry never saw coming. It's an insect called Asian citrus psyllid which spreads a disease called Huang Long Bing, or HLB. Citrus farmers call HLB by the name greening because of the effects that the disease has on the color of the leaves. They turn from deep forest green to a lighter green. Affected trees develop lopsided fruit and the juice turns sour. 
the trees eventually lose many of their leaves and suffer a slow decline. Farmers who find trees with HLB kill them off in massive fire pits to try and protect the rest of their crops. No one knows exactly how the insect made its way from Asia to Florida, but its arrival and devastation began in 2005 after a quick series of historically large hurricanes spread warm air and water. Now, every major crop farmer in Florida has had to change his or her practices to try to stanch this new enemy. The industry has donated millions of dollars to a research center at the University of Florida called the Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences, or IFAS. The institute is serving as the de facto war room in the battle against greening. Along with issuing warnings and reports, the IFAS is testing and developing many potential solutions, including genetically modified orange trees, which have been developed without the gene that's affected by the disease. But as of now, no cure is in sight. In just over a decade, thousands of citrus industry jobs have been lost, and vacant groves and packing facilities can be seen around towns and farmland all around South Florida. And while the Florida orange industry might be rightly worried about extinction, citrus fruits aren't yet in danger of being totally wiped out. Citrus can still grow really well in many places, including Dr. George's yard in Miami. Grapefruits, uh, lemons, limes. And this place is so ideally suited for it. You know, it's just amazing. We had a, um, I grew up here, my mom had in the back a calamandin tree, which is a citrus. She had a, a lime tree in the back. My wife has cultivated different citrus crops here too. Uh, it's just been amazing. I mean, it's, they just grow, you know, it's great. You know, you talk to somebody in New York, it's like, my God, really? Yeah, but they do, they do. And citrus use among cooks in the U.S. has never been a highly localized phenomenon. If you're using oranges or grapefruit in your cooking and don't live in Florida or California, they're probably not locally grown. And that's fine. Citrus, of course, is growing successfully in many parts of the world. Brazil, China, Mexico, India, Iran, and more. We're not going to run out of citrus anytime soon, thank God. When we come back, Chef Bernstein cooks a very special recipe which can help us cherish the pleasures of cooking with citrus, no matter where in the world we are. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. <laughs> 
Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Chef Bernstein generously agreed to record a recipe demo for us from her home kitchen in Miami. And what she teaches us to make is a recipe that's easy enough to memorize and versatile enough to spawn a hundred variations. It's mojo de ajo. So what's cool about mojo de ajo is that, and I don't know how to say it in English, basically mojo de ajo, <laughs> a garlic mojo, um, is great not only as a marinade, but also as a topping, as a sauce, as a vinaigrette. There's lots of different ways to make mojo de ajo, but mine is to add as many different flavors of citrus as possible. On her stove are two small saute pans. On her right front burner... So right now all I'm doing is sauteing a piece of fish to show you um, one of the hundreds of things that you could put with mojo de ajo. So this is a yellowtail snapper, locally caught. Um, it's just a fillet, pretty small. I would say that this is maybe about a four to five ounce fillet. And in the other pan on the left. So now I'm going to start the mojo. So I'm not too into cooking with really great quality olive oil. To me, great quality olive oil should be like a topping. Um, so I use a good extra virgin olive oil for this but nothing too fancy because it's a shame it would denature as it heats. So I add a little bit of olive oil and olive oil is the base of the sauce. So she recommends using a half cup of oil and we'll link to her recipe in the show notes for more details like that. If you think it looks too oily, that's not a bad thing. You can always um, use as you wish with a spoon, just take out the good bits of it. Um, but you need a, a nice amount of olive oil to saute your garlic properly. Um, some people do a mojo de ajo with raw garlic, but to me, there's nothing like doing it with toasty caramelized garlic because let's fa face it, it changes the whole, um, dimension of the flavor. Uh. For the garlic, slice it as thinly as you can. 
This will increase the surface area of the garlic, allowing it to cook quickly and distribute its flavor more evenly. So this can be made, um, as I'm making this with yellowtail snapper, if you make this at home, uh, you can use everything, anything. Um, a piece of pork, a piece of chicken, uh, a steak, a filet, salmon, um, shrimp, actually. Oh, throwing shrimp in the mojoreajo would be delicious. Uh, you name it. There's really no limit. Tofu, vegetables, whatever you like. All right, so that fish is basically just going to finish cooking. I'm going to shut it off because there's nothing worse than overcooking fish, especially as a Florida person. I should know how to cook a fish properly. But this so. goes for any protein you want to use with mojo de ajo. Just prepare it simply because the beautiful sauce will do the singing. Also, before you start cooking on the stove, you'll want to take some time to prep your ingredients. Slice segments of your citrus fruits and have your herbs close by. If you're squeezing by hand, cut your limes in thirds to avoid the thick core. This gives you more juice and beautiful looking lime wedges. So, here we go. Um, I have some pink grapefruit, a little bit of mandarin, some limes, regular oranges. It doesn't matter what kind of citrus you get as long as you have citrus. So, I have this very thinly sliced garlic. And that's the first thing that goes in. You want to shake that around a little bit. Use a spoon or a hand. It's up to you. And as soon as it turns golden, you actually shut the heat off. And you get a waft of this deliciously caramelizing garlic. Now I want you to listen here. Right. Michelle isn't measuring anything. All she's doing is sautéing sliced garlic in plenty of olive oil, paying attention to color and smell, then adding the rest of the ingredients carefully because the oil is super hot and stays that way. All right, I'm going to season the garlic. A nice amount of salt. This really takes a good amount of salt because of all the citrus that we're going to add in. A little hit of pepper. And it's up to you if you want to make it spicy. If you want to make it spicy, go ahead and throw in. I have here some very thinly sliced jalapenos that we actually use a mandolin to slice um, and then you begin uh, the fun the citrus so I'm gonna take the first thing is lime because to me lime is the most important part of mojo de ajo or a sour orange so I follow up the lime with a piece of uh, any type of an orange colored citrus so I'm going to just cut that in half, add that in, shake it up, and again, my heat is off, it sounds like it's on, but it's off, so that nothing caramelizes too much anymore in the pan. Then if you want to add, I'm adding a little bit of um, segmented or sections from a grapefruit, if you have one around, um, it adds color and a little bit of bitterness, which I love, but if you're not into the bitterness, then add segments or sections of an orange or a mandarin and add that in like that and then it's basically done if you want to get a little fancy you can add a little bit of cilantro um, and I would basically just take a knife and you don't have to be perfect with it um, I just kind of grab it roll it around and chop 
a couple slices from it, nice and thin. You can even pick the leaves if you wanted to. Like I said, it doesn't really matter. This is rustic food at its finest, especially rustic Latin food. Take whatever it is you're cooking. I'm taking my snapper, which is really nice and juicy. Um, put it in the middle of the plate. And then you can either pour that mojo de ajo right on or you can spoon it on. Totally up to you. I'm going to throw that cilantro into the mojo, stir it around a little bit, and then take a big old spoon and try to get every little piece of that citrus and the citrus juices and the garlic ah, and the oil, and then spoon that right over that piece of fish. So that basically what you have is the fish is secondary, right? The mojo de ajo is everything. It's just this warm vinaigrette with these bright colors from the citrus. Uh, the oil around it is glistening and um, it's like salty and tart. It has a little bit of heat from the jalapeno, which again, you don't have to use, but it's fun. And if you only have dried chilies, those work too. Um, and it just pops it, right? It brings out all the freshness and whatever it is you're cooking. And it just gives so much flavor so simply and it's actually pretty healthy too uh with an olive oil base like this and all the citrus it's it's good for you and, and pretty good to look at <laughs> that's all there is to it one beautiful thing about moho de ajo is that it can be prepared quickly without a recipe it's almost like a genre of sauce it can be improvised in countless ways try it with a pork shop try it over rice try it cooled down as a salad dressing as Michelle says, it'll brighten your whole week. When we explained our show's mission to Bernstein, she immediately connected with it. And I want to close the show with her words of wisdom. After she finishes, go get some food and cook. So, I know it's scary to start cooking if you've never been taught to cook. However, Think about it like this. It's almost scarier to know that you're putting your health, not only yours, but also your family's health and your hard-earned cash into how everybody or anybody else will cook every single day. So rather than doing that, a gift to yourself, a gift to your family would be just try it. Try, always try to start simply. It's amazing what taking a, let's, let's use the most basic of foods, right? Let's take a piece of chicken and let's take one that I don't even like. Let's take a breast of chicken. Okay. Let's take a little mallet and slightly pound up that chicken. Let's add, I don't know, the most basic of ingredients like salt and pepper. Let's throw in that lemon zest in there, maybe a piece of garlic. Okay. You don't even have to cut it perfectly. And let's take a little bit of olive oil, heat that pan up at medium and saute that chicken breast just until it's nice and golden on both sides. Because you flattened it a little, you don't have to even go in the oven. Now, turn that pan down to low, squeeze a lemon in there, or an orange, or both. Throw in a little bit of very roughly chopped herb. Whatever smells good to you, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't have to be finely chopped. Put that on a bed of white rice or brown rice or quinoa, whatever turns you on, even just maybe some chopped up avocado or even a cucumber if you don't feel like cooking anything else. And taste that and feel what it feels like to have empowerment and ownership over what you've made. 
first of all, you're going to feel like a million bucks because you've done something for yourself and for your family. You're going to feel like, holy smokes, is it that easy to make something this delicious and this healthy? And you're just going to be proud. You know, even I, after 20, oh my goodness, 20 something years of cooking, I'll roast a chicken and I'll put it down in front of my family and maybe a baked potato and watch them eat it. And I can't even begin to tell you how good you feel, how proud you feel as a parent, as a wife, as a husband, um, just being immersive, right? And you make that something that you do as a family together. And when you sit down and eat together as a family, it's amazing all the things that can come out, all the beauty that can come up and and how thankful everyone really feels at the end of it. Uh, and then scoop yourself some vanilla ice cream and, and, uh, and just commend yourself on how good you feel about what you've done. Special thanks to Michelle Bernstein for the snapper and Moho de Ajo. If you're in Miami and lucky enough to get a reservation, go check out her new restaurant, Cafe La Trova in Little Havana. Thanks also to Dr. Paul George. You can find his extensive tours through his website, historymiami.org. From Scratch is produced by Jonathan Dressler. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our supervising producer is Gabrielle Collins. All of the music is by Ryan Scott off his album, A Freak Grows in Brooklyn. Also, I've got a new book out called From Scratch about 10 staple meals and all they can teach you about cooking. We'll have a link in the show notes or go to Amazon or any independent bookseller. From Scratch is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Compatibility. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 
24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.